Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers, or brothers and sisters, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. So last time we looked at uh, that great passage in the end of chapter 5, Walking by the Spirit. We're in Paul's practical session, uh, section now. Uh, Paul has dealt with the problem of... Uh, adding works to the gospel. He has dismantled that argument. He has laid it out. Uh, He, in detail, in several cases, shows how the gospel has always been by grace through faith. He shows it through the Old Testament. He shows it through the inability of the law to justify. He shows it in the inability of the law to secure the promises of God. He shows it in uh, the inability of the law as a sense of its temporariness, its, um, its... transient, I, I don't, I'm, it, it's, it's not a permanent thing. It, was, it always had an expiration date as far as leading the people of God until Christ came. Um, so he has dismantled that. He shows how it's obsolete, uh, the obsolescence of the law. He shows how, um, and then he finishes that section in, at the end of chapter 4 where he looks at uh, the example of Sarah and Hagar and just shows how the new covenant uh, is superior to the Old Covenant. Not that the Old Covenant is bad, it's just that the Old Covenant had a purpose, and it served its purpose, and now it's, it has given way to the New Covenant, and how the promise uh, was never annulled by the law, how the law can never uh, secure the, the blessings of the promise, and so on and so forth. So then when we get to chapter 5, he breaks forth in this uh, exaltation of our freedom in Christ. And, and because we are free in Christ, we should not submit to a yoke of slavery. In other words, do not go back. Do not go back to the old ways of doing things. So in this practical section, though, he talks about how our freedom, if you look at verses 13 and 14, we're going to reference this later, but in verses 13 and 14, he talks about how we are called to freedom, yet our freedom is not, as he puts it here, an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, we are not free to serve ourselves. We're not free to to serve our own desires, to fulfill our own desires. We are free now to love one another. And that's what we're going to see in this passage here, as this is expressed in, uh, in verses 1 through 5, through the bearing of another's burdens. Uh, but you know, he talks about our freedom is not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin. And he talks about the battle. That's what we looked at last time, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. They are at war with one another. We are in a constant daily struggle, a daily battle. When I say struggle, I don't mean, you know, we kind of maybe hear that word and, it, and we think, oh, well, it's kind of like softening. Well, no, I mean, if you look at the way the New Testament translates the word struggle, it, it's like a wrestling match. It, you, know, you, you, are, you know, you are fighting, you are wrestling with, you are... Um, you know, engaging with the flesh here. Um, they are at war with one another. They are opposed to one another. You have these two 
uh, equal and opposite, well, not equal. You have these two opposing principles at work in you. The Spirit brings new birth. The Spirit brings new life to the dead believer. And now uh, that person is, for the first time in their lives, aware of their sin, aware of their shortcomings before God. And now this causes a battle as the flesh tries to regain what it is losing through its battle with the Spirit. So we have this struggle. But then Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are, you are no longer under the curse, under the condemnation of the law. Uh, he talks about the works of the flesh. We looked at how he uh, contrasts works with fruit. Works, that word suggests something that we do in our own strength, something that is inherent from us, something that we work out through our own ability. And you see there, the works are... Well, they're not good, right? There's a whole list there of, of nasty things, sexual immorality, impurity, so on and so forth. But the fruit, that is something we don't work out in our own strength. That is something that is worked out in us by the Spirit. And you see there the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Against such things there is no law. In other words, if you are walking by the Spirit, you are not violating the law. You are fulfilling the law if you're walking by the Spirit. So there's no need for a law in that sense. Um, so that's, that's that passage there. So now what we see when we come to chapter 6 is this idea of one anothering. Um, you know, you see one anothering throughout the New Testament. And I think, I'm just going to lay the cards out up front in the beginning. I think the one anothering is the heartbeat of the Christian life. It is through the one anothering that we fulfill the law of Christ that we see here. Um, and, and it's through the one anothering that the work of the Spirit is, is accomplished in each of us. God uses the means of the one anothering to grow his people. Um, you think of the old joke about the guy, you know, when he hears about the flood warning. And he's like, well, I prayed to God. I'm praying to God to deliver me from the flood, right? You probably know this joke. So a guy comes by in a car and says, come on, we've got to get out of here. Uh, the floodwaters are coming. He says, no, no, I'm waiting for God to deliver me. And the floodwaters start to go up, and he goes up to his second window, and somebody comes by in a boat and says, come on, come on, come on. Well, we've we got to get out of here. He says, no, 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 I'm waiting for God to deliver me. And then the floodwaters get up and up. He's on the roof. Helicopter comes by, drops a ladder, and says, come on, you know, I'll save you. He says, no, no, I'm waiting for God to deliver me. Well, the guy ends up dying. He's in heaven. He says, God, why didn't you deliver me? He says, well, I sent a car, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? You know, the idea is God works through ordinary means, often. I mean, he can work through extraordinary means, and I don't mean to limit that, but often he works through ordinary means, and that is through the one anothering, as we'll see here in this passage. And really, this hits on an idea we talk about uh, called the communion of the saints, the communion of the saints. As we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. We are members of one body, if you remember that study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, now, some of us may be arms and hands, and, 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 and some of us may be legs and feet and everything, but it doesn't matter. We're all part of one body. And really what he's talking about here is the spiritual life. Not spiritual as you hear the word spiritual used and thrown about today, where you know, people say, well, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Well, that's not what we're talking about. 
Because oftentimes when they say I'm spiritual, not religious, it means that they're not spiritual either. It just, it just means I don't want to go to church. Okay? And I don't want to have to listen to what you tell me from that dusty old book. That's typically what it means. Um, it's not self-fulfillment. That's, what you, uh, that's another avenue that the spiritual people go down is the, the route of self-fulfillment. Uh, it's not self-actualization, uh, but it's a life lived for and to one another. Uh, it's, it's, it's not something that we produce. We don't produce the spiritual life. It is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And it is, it is a life that is characterized by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by spiritual. And the communion of the saints is worked out that way. As we, you know, as the old Proverbs say, iron sharpens iron, right? Uh, or your, your, one of your favorite verses from Ecclesiastes, right? A cord of three uh, strands is not easily broken. Um, so the idea of coming together as a body to help one another. That's what we're going to see here this morning. So as we head into this passage, my overarching idea here is that faith working through love is seen in the church as we bear one another's burdens and encourage one another to love and good works. Okay, that's a lot of words there. I'll repeat that if you were trying to write that down. Faith working through love is seen in the church as we bear one another's burdens and encourage one another to love and good works. So that's what the idea I have here kind of uh, governing this passage we're going to look at. So we're going to first look at verse 1, restoration and gentleness. So look again at verse 1. Brothers, or if you have a more modern translation, you might have a footnote that says, or brothers and sisters. Brothers, <laughs> uh, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. All right, I'm going to say something shocking here. All right, you ready? You all seated? Of course you all seated. Okay. The church is filled with sinners. Shocking, right? <laughs> I know, I could see the looks of, uh, really? Yes, the church is filled with sinners. We are not a sanctuary for the perfect. We're a hospital for the spiritually infirm. Okay? Uh, as the old trope goes, if you find the perfect church, do not join it because you will only ruin it. <laughs> okay? Uh, we are filled, the church is filled with sinners. Right? That's, and, and if anything, that should be the sign on our door. Sinners welcome. Right? Sinners welcome. That should be on our sign. Sinners welcome. The church is a sanctuary or hospital for the spiritually infirm. And after speaking about walking by the Spirit so we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul then anticipates, well, what happens if you do fall? What happens if you do gratify the desires of the flesh? What happens if you, for that day or that week or that month or even that year, you give in to the flesh in that battle that you're in? Because that can happen. You could fall into a season of sin. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means that you are not succeeding in that struggle with the flesh. What happens if you fall? What happens if you fail? That's where the church comes in. That's where the church comes in. That's what Paul says here, where he says, 
you have to bear one another's burdens. This is, this is the communion of the saints in action. Part of our love for one another is seen in the recovery and restoration of sinning brothers and sisters. That is part of our calling as a church. When, one, when, when we see someone falling, when we see someone sinning, it is the duty of the church to come alongside that person and encourage them and restore them. So Paul begins in verse 1 by mentioning a brother who is caught in any transgression. That word caught in Greek, prolumbano. Sounds like a, sounds like a mafia enforcer, right? Guido prolumbano. <laughs> prolumbano means you are caught ahead of time. It's, it's like if you're caught in the act of sinning, if you're discovered, if you are overtaken in sin, it's at these times that we need true spiritual care. Again, remember, we are a hospital for the infirm. If you have a, a, a relapse, right, think of cancer, right? You go and you get the chemo and you're declared cancer-free, but then at some point in the future, the cancer may relapse. What do you do? Then you go back to the hospital, right? And you receive the care that you need. Same thing in the church. If someone is caught in any transgression... Paul's point is that if a brother or sister is discovered in a sin, it is the duty of the spiritual brothers or sisters to restore him or her. So I'm going to focus on three words there. Duty, spiritual, and restore. All right, it is the duty of the church to do this. That's that, uh, that phrase there where he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. That, that, that word there, restore, the verb there is in the imperative. It's a command. Right? If you see a brother or sister sinning in the church, you should restore him, church. It's a you, it's a, it's a, a, a plural. The church should restore him. Now, for whatever reason, I'm not saying this is characteristic of us, I'm just speaking in general. For whatever reason, we often tend to ignore or overlook someone's sins. Right? We, see, we know of someone's sins and we just say, well, that's their business, I'm not going to... I'm not going to stick my nose in their business. They, they, they have to deal with that. Or maybe we boast of our own piety. Did you hear what so-and-so has done? It's like, eh, I would never do that. You know? Or maybe we gossip about it, you know, or we talk about it. Um, no, the duty of Christians is if you see someone caught in sin, to restore them. And then that word there where he says, you who are spiritual... Uh, there it's talking of someone who is a little more mature in the faith, maybe someone who has lived through these things and has come out on the other end, thanks again to God's Holy Spirit. Someone who is, someone who is mature in their faith. It doesn't mean that you've been a Christian for a long time. You can have been a Christian for a relatively short period of time and still be mature in your faith. Or you could be a Christian for a long time and maybe not be mature in your faith. The point is, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, Maybe a stronger brother or sister in the faith should come alongside and, and, and restore this person. And that word restore, it talks about, it's kind of like the idea of mending or setting a broken bone. Um, uh, it, to heal, to mend. The whole point of, and we're going to look at these verses in a, in a moment, but the whole point of discipline in the church 
is for the restoration of the sinning brother or sister, right? Discipline is not to kick somebody out. That's a last resort. What you want to do in the process of discipline is to restore that brother or sister. You want them to repent so that they can enjoy then the spiritual fellowship that is theirs in the body of Christ. So restore. Only those who are spiritual can restore sending a brother or sister. You don't want to send them to, you know, like a psychologist or, or, or self-help guru or a life coach, someone in the world. You don't want to send, to send them to somebody in the world. If they're dealing with a sin issue, that's, that's a church issue. It's not a world issue. Think about, again, 1 Corinthians 6, where they had uh, um, struggles in the church. They had conflict in the church. And what were they doing? Well, they were ignoring church leadership, and they were airing their dirty laundry in the civil law courts. They were suing one another. And Paul says, no, that's wrong. If you've got a problem in the church, it's dealt with in the church. You don't take church issues and adjudicate them in civil courts. So really what was going on in Corinth, among other things, was a lack of church leadership there. The church leadership wasn't doing their job, perhaps. But here, the idea is only those who are spiritual can restore sinning brothers or sisters because it's a spiritual issue. Sin is a spiritual issue. It is not a worldly issue. So this restoration ought to be done here, as Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness. Which, of course, as we just came out of that passage on the fruit of the Spirit, that is one, one of the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 23. Gentleness. Gentleness. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, why, why should we seek to restore a sinning brother in a spirit of gentleness? What do you think? I really wanted to look into this a little more, but I ran out of time, so maybe you can help me answer this question. Why do you think it's a spirit of gentleness? Exactly. <laughs> because we're all prone to transgression. If you didn't hear the answer, because we're sinners ourselves. It's a spirit of gentleness because we're all prone to, tra- to transgression. We're all prone to sin. Sin and temptation is subtle oftentimes, right? Sometimes it comes trying to barge through the front door. Sometimes it sneaks in the back door when you're not paying attention. If you're not on guard... Some, that's when sin can kind of overtake you. It's subtle. And oftentimes we even tend to ignore the little sins, right? That's why I've kind of been finding this, this month's uh, issue of Table Talk very convicting because he talks about, or the, the issue talks about commonly overlooked sins, right? Or commonly tolerated sins. You know, and, and laziness, pride, gossip. You know, things that we often don't, you know, we look at, you know, the big sins like, you know, well, you know, adultery or pornography or, or stealing or, or, you know, things like that. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of other little sins that we tend to ignore. You know, you look at the lists again. Look at, just take a look at verses uh, 19, 20, 21 of chapter 5, idolatry, right? You know, can, can we commit the sin of idolatry? Absolutely. If you start putting anything before God in your life, if anything supplants God in the first place in your life, and we often do that with things that are good, right? Sometimes family can be an idol. 
right? You know, you, it's like, well, you know, we're not going to go to church today because we have a family function. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe you should go to church. <laughs> uh, maybe the family function should be rescheduled. Maybe you schedule it later in the day. Maybe you put it on a Saturday. You know, the, you know there's very few reasons to miss church. How about uh, enmity? You know, <laughs> very easy to show enmity when you watch the news today, right? You know, you could look at the news and you're like, man, I hate that politician. That politician irks me. You know, you start speaking bad things about that person. You know, sin is subtle. Sin is subtle. We have to do it in the spirit of gentleness, realizing that we too are also broken sinners on the road to recovery. That's why Paul says we need to keep watch on ourselves, lest we too be tempted. Very easy to fall into the same temptation. And this is the real work of the church, I think. I mean, we could talk about evangelism, right? We could talk about instruction, fellowship. But a church is authentic when it comes alongside a brother or sister who is struggling and seeks to restore them. This is how the world looks at us and sees us as Christians, right? When John, uh, in John 13, Jesus tells his disciples, the world will know you are my, dis- my disciples when they see your love for one another. Why? Because the world doesn't love like that. The world does not love like that. So when they see that kind of love, it either repulses them or it attracts them, right? The Spirit can use that as a hook to get someone from the world into the church. Now, I'm going to look at a bunch of passages. You don't need to turn. You can. I'm not telling you you can't. But you, uh, we're going to try to look at these in quick order. First one is Second Samuel. This is, again, this idea of restoring. Second Samuel 12. If you know the context... This is King David. In 2 Samuel 11, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. What? Did someone ask a question? No? Okay. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in the entire chapter, you don't see the name of the Lord mentioned until the very last word of the chapter. where We're told the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Okay. And now, in chapter 12, you see in verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Okay? David is caught in a transgression. What does the Lord do? Does he cast David off? No. He sends Nathan. Nathan is his vehicle that he's going to use to restore David. And you know how the story goes, right? Nathan comes up, and and he tells David a little story. And he says... King, almighty king, Uh, there's a story of a man who had one sheep and a man who had a lot of sheep, and that man who had a lot of sheep had a visitor, and he goes to the man who had one sheep and took his sheep and used it to serve his friend. And David is like, that man ought to be put to death. And Nathan points at David and says, you are that man. And then David was cut to the heart. And David realized that the Lord knew his sin. Nathan was sent to restore him, and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Another passage, Ezekiel 34. And there, in Ezekiel 34, God is 
condemning the shepherds of Israel. Why? Because they are beating the sheep. They are taking advantage of the sheep. And in verse 16 of Ezekiel 34, well, verse 15, let's say, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And the reason is this, because the shepherds of Israel were not doing their job. Beginning of chapter 34, Ezekiel is commanded by the Lord to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, uh, thus says the Lord, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the sheep, the shepherds feed the sheep? But you do not feed the sheep. Verse 6, my sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the, all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So the shepherds were failing at their job and the Lord says, I will be their shepherd. Right? I will gather them. I will bind them. I will heal them. I will restore them. I will seek them out. And he does that when he sends the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true shepherd. Matthew 18. You know, we talked about church discipline. And this is the passage that is often used to support and undergird the idea and concept of uh, church discipline. Now, it's, it, the chapter begins with uh, the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus says, um, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And then he pronounces a woe on anyone who causes one of the little ones to believe in me to sin. And then he talks about the parable of the lost sheep in verses 10 through 14. Then in 15, verse 15 of chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, that idea, the passage there is just talking about how to restore a sinning brother. If a brother sins against you, you go to him and you tell him his fault. This is not a public thing. This is private because implied is the sin is in private. It's against you. Right? If he doesn't listen to you, if he refuses to listen to you, you bring some witnesses to establish the charge. If he refuses to listen to you, then, then you bring it to the church. And then if he refuses to listen to the church, then, as Jesus says here, it becomes as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Well, now he becomes like a mission work. Okay? He becomes something, somebody you need to perhaps re-evangelize. Uh, the point is, again, it's always for the restoration of the sinning brother. And you go to those lengths to do that. James 5, 
Ladies, you know this passage because we looked at it at the end of James. The last two verses in the book of James, James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Psalm 141. I know we're I didn't put these in order. I apologize. But Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him, let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. There the psalmist is saying, look, let a righteous man strike me. Let someone who is righteous correct me. It's the same thing you see in Proverbs. Uh, I was looking for this proverb. That's a problem. I, you know, some Proverbs I know where they are. Some I have to look for them because I've read them. and I, It's like I know this, there's a proverb that says this. Um, it's Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. That's the idea Paul's getting at here. Better is open rebuke. If, if a brother is caught in sin, it is, it is the more loving thing to do is not to hold it back. It's to go and rebuke him for it. And the verse after it, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's the idea of when you're trying to bring that sinning brother back, sometimes you may have to metaphorically wound them. Okay? Not physically wound them. But the idea there is, look, look, because those wounds are done in love. They're done in love with the idea of restoring the brother, not um, to wound them. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There, you know, there's that, that, that classic way of Proverbs to kind of show an antithesis, right? You know, it's the enemy that's showering fake love on you and, and affirming you, right? You know, you think about that's the big coin of the, of the realm these days is affirmation. People want to commit sin and they want you to affirm it, right? And that's, that's what Paul says at the end of Romans 1 where he says, not only do they do, you know, these, not only do they, you know, allow these things to be done, but then they give their approval to them as well, right? Oh, you are so affirmed in what you're doing in, in this, that, or the other thing. No, we are to restore sinning brothers and sisters. Now look at verse 2 of Galatians 6. See, it's a good thing I broke this up, right? Galatians 6, verse 2, where we bear one another's burdens. Okay. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And here, I, get, I think, is the heart of the passage. The bearing here, that, that word, bastadzo, bear, uh, to bear, to carry, to share uh, of, of one another's burdens. There, that bur- the word there for burden uh, is typically ref- uh, to, refers to something that's like particularly heavy, a hardship. So the idea is you've got something that you can't carry yourself, so you ask a friend to come so you can, you know, when you're moving, right? When we moved here to Sutton, it was 18 of you came that day when the truck came and you 
bore our burdens <laughs> and you helped us move all the things into our house. You know, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, when you have something that's too heavy, it's like, hey, can you help me with this? And you, the two of you can do it together. You bear one another's burdens. And in Greek there, the word, the phrase one another is uh, front-loaded, okay? What I mean by front-loaded is if you look at it in the Greek, one another begins the sentence. Uh, I may have said this before. You may have heard this before from someone else. But word order in Greek doesn't matter as much as the tenses because you can tell how the sentence is supposed to be structured in English. English word order matters a lot. But in Greek, word order doesn't really matter. So if you want to emphasize something, oftentimes you put it at the front of the sentence. That is a way of signaling emphasis in the original language. So uh, in the original language is one another. Bear the burdens. <laughs> Bear the burdens of one another. But it's front-loaded for emphasis. And part of one anothering one another. Can I say that? One anothering one another. Part of one anothering one another is to bear their burdens. Now these burdens are, but not limited to, the sins and trespasses, which, which the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, lay aside all those weights that bury, you know, that that weigh you down, lay aside that burden that weighs you down so you can run the race. So these, are, these could be the sins and trespasses which weigh us down, but it's not limited to that. These burdens, you know, we all have burdens of some form or, or another, right? We all have something that we have to bear. And all these burdens, they're not all sins. Sometimes we have a burden of sorrow. Sometimes we're burdened with doubt. Sometimes we're burdened with loneliness. Sometimes we're burdened with... with uh, any other thing it could be uh, poverty, you know, physical things. You think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? In Luke 10, uh, the, the story goes there's a guy who's been beset by robbers and he's laying there on the side of the road bleeding, right? And we're told of three religious people that walk by a priest, a scribe, and a Levite. And they each see the guy there, and they don't do anything to help carry this guy's burden. So who comes in, who's the hero of the story? Well, it's Jesus is the hero of the story. But Jesus is in the form of the Samaritan, right? Samaritans and Jews, you know, they don't have a good relationship with one another. And it's the Samaritan who comes and helps this Jewish guy who has been waylaid on the road. The religious people don't do anything because they don't want to get, you know, they don't want to become ceremonially unclean if they touch this poor, I mean, he could be dead for all they know. And if they touch a dead body, well, they can't go to synagogue that week because they have to go cleanse themselves. So their own piety gets in the way. Uh, the religious people refuse to help him, but it is the Samaritan who bears it. And what does he do, right? He, he binds him, he cleans him, he wraps his wounds, he takes him to, a, uh, to a, a lodging, and he pays for his lodging. That's bearing one another's burdens in a, in a lot of ways. Paul likes to describe the Christian life as a race, but it is not a race in which it is every man for himself or every woman for herself. What good is the church if we don't come alongside one another? What are we doing if we don't help one another? Seriously. You know, I mean, we're not atomistic. We're not just little individuals that come to this building once a week to hear me talk for, you know, 30 to 45 minutes and then go home and, you know, and then you don't touch one another's lives, right? 
Now, I'm not saying that's, again, I'm not saying that's characteristic of our church. But the idea of church is to come alongside one another, to help one another. Notice what Paul says at the end of that verse. And so fulfill the law of Christ. When we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, what's the law of Christ? Well, it's the law of love. It's, it's the Ten Commandments distilled down to its essence when Jesus says it can all be summarized as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ. It's the law of God. It's the moral law. It's the law of love, whatever you want to call it. We mentioned this earlier. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the point of our freedom. We have been set free to do this. I think we are never more like our Savior than when we bear one another's burdens. Again, think of Matthew 11, right? Jesus sees the, the burden, the heavy-laden people of Israel. And he says, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy-laden. I will give you rest from the burdens that you have been laid with. Then you take my yoke. I've got an easy yoke. I've got a light burden. Why? Because I'm taking the burden of the law off of your hands. I'm fulfilling the law. I will fulfill the law for you. I will remove its curse from you. And now you're free to love. That's my yoke, Jesus says. Love one another. And that's what Paul says in Romans 15. It's been a while since we saw this, but Romans 15, the first three verses... Where Paul says, we who are strong, not physically, this is, again, the spiritual, the mature, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Let each of us, who, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And who is the example? Well, Jesus is, right? For Christ did not please himself, but as, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus took our burden, and, and we are to follow that example. As I said earlier, in fact, we are often the means God uses to help one another, to help with the burdens of one another. That, that's, you know, God works through ordinary means. God works through a brother or sister coming alongside another brother or sister and saying, let me help you with this. I notice you are struggling with this. What can we do together? How can I help you? How can I get you away from that trap? Bear one another's burdens. And then finally, verses 3 through 5, examine ourselves. One of the most common faults for a Christian is to compare ourselves to compare our lives with the lives of other Christians, right? You look, well, I may not be perfect, but pff, have you seen him? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have my faults, but, ugh, you know. You know what that is? That is 
a competition for who is the world's smallest midget. You know what I mean by that? It's like we're all short, right? And we're looking to see who's the tallest one of the short people. No. Think of Luke 18:10 or 18:11 and following the parable of the Samaritan or the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? That's what the Pharisee was doing in that parable. The Pharisee was there and he was like praying before God. And he's like, oh, Lord, I am so great. I am so wonderful. Aren't you lucky to have me on your team? And, and I'm not like, you know, all these other sinners, like this guy here. <laughs> you know, and he points to the, 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 the publican, the, the tax collector. And what is the publican doing? He's got his face to the ground, and he's beating his chest. And he, he's crying out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says, that's the guy who goes home justified, not the Pharisee. Why? Because the Pharisee was trusting in his works, and he was comparing himself to someone else. If we see another brother caught in sin and think, wow, I would never do that, that, that's foolishness. That's not the way to think. If we claim to have this, solve this Christian life, then we reveal ourselves to be deceivers and fools. Right? If, what does John say in his letter, right? If you say you have no sin, you are a liar. <laughs> and the truth is not in you. We, we have not solved this Christian life. The standard is not one another, right? If you're going to compare yourself to anybody, what's the standard? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. The, the standard is Jesus. Look to him, right? He, he who is in our own flesh yet committed no sin. That's the standard. You want to measure yourself up to somebody, look to that standard, and then you realize, I have fallen far short. So that's why Paul exhorts us to test, examine ourselves. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. You know, that, that word there means to examine, to prove, to approve of. Test your own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So examine yourself. Instead of comparing yourself to a sinning brother, look to your own work. And it's not what we think of our own sin, because what we think of our own sin doesn't matter. Right? It's what does God say of our sin? What does God say of our sin? Because I'm prone to sort of overlook my sins and not think that they're as bad as they really are, right? Well, you know, I might, I might, you know, we grade on a curve. You know, <laughs> I look at my life and I say, well, it's not too bad, right? Okay, I give myself a B minus. You know, <laughs> you know, and God's like, no, no, if you're going to look at your own works, you've got an F, brother. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. We grade on a curve. We grade on a curve. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, says, do not judge one another. Right? Because with the standard you judge, that's the standard God is going to use on you. And I remember the late Tim Keller, who is now with the Lord, uh, in one of his books says, you know, when, in, when he's talking about that verse, he's like, look, we don't even, we don't even fulfill our own, uh, <laughs> our own standards, right? Whatever standard we use to judge, we fail our own standards. 
we fail our own standards. Do not judge one another. And then he talks about you know, that great example of the speck in the log, right? You know, we're so busy looking at the speck in everyone else's eyes, and we've got this giant you know, support beam coming out of our own eyeballs. It's like, examine yourself. Instead of looking at a brother struggling with his burden, we should pray the prayer of Psalm 26.2. Right? Psalm 26.2. There where David says, well, yeah, David, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Look at me, Lord. Examine my life. Show me where I have fallen short. Our bow should be in the Lord, not ourselves, for each one is responsible for carrying his own load. That's what he says in verse 5. For each one will have to bear his own load. Now it sounds like, wait a sec, you just said you've got to bear another's birds. Now you're saying you've got to carry your own load? Well, two things to say about that. One, the words are different. <laughs> Burden, load in the English. Two, they're also different in the Greek, which means they have a different connotation, different range of meanings there. And the word load there is more of like your, you know, it, it often speaks of like a pack that a guy would carry on a, on a day's travel, right? You've got to carry your own load. But if you see someone with a burden, you need to help them with a burden. Burden is something that is a little heavier, uh, you know, the idea there. So instead of comparing yourself to a brother who is struggling with his burden, first, carry your own load. Second, Help that brother with his burden. <laughs> That's the idea of Paul saying here. We each have a load to carry, and each one's load is different. My load is different than your load. Your load is different than your neighbor's load. The Lord puts these uh, cir- circumstances, these situations in our lives, and he gives each one uh, a certain load to carry. And guess what? He gives us the ability to carry that load as well. But sometimes that load can become a burden. Sometimes we could trip and fail and fall and stumble. That's when we need the church to come alongside one another and help one another. That's the loving thing to do. So as I bring this to a close this morning, uh, this passage clearly shows that the church has a duty of love to care for one another. If you see that brother struggling, you come alongside that brother and you help them. You restore them. Now, this is hard for us in America and probably even in the Midwest. You know, we tend to be very self-sufficient. We tend to be very individualistic, right? Um, I can, you know, I, you know, you do your own thing. You know, it's like you, you take care of your own. It's hard to trust. It's hard to look at and, and admit any kind of need. And we may even look down upon those who can't take care of their own business. That's not the point Paul's making here. That's not the heart of Christ. I think if we take anything away from this, I hope it's a growth in our love for one another. And again, I don't think, I don't think we're, I mean, I think we're good at this. I think as a church we're pretty good at this. I've seen this on multiple occasions. There's a death in the family, and I, you know, so many people come alongside, and they bring meals, they come and sit with the people, they talk with them, they help them through this. Uh, when someone needs help moving, people are there to help them move. I mean, I've seen this in our church. So I'm not saying this to you. It's like you guys are bad at this and you need to be better at this. But we could always be better at it, right? We, right? we could always improve in these things. 
So I hope we do grow in our love for one another because, again, as, John, as Jesus says in John 13, that is how the world will know we are his disciples. But the good news, of course, is that Jesus came to take our burdens, right? Our greatest burden, which is our sin. Jesus came and he took our sin because we were stumbling under that burden. And Jesus said, I'll come and I'll take that burden for you. I'll carry that burden for you. And he carried his own cross up to Golgotha and died on that cross, bearing our burdens. Burdens none of us could carry. And then in light of that, in light of that, then we ought to then do likewise with one another. That's the call of this passage, to do likewise, to love one another as Christ has loved us. So I'll stop here because I am way at time.